Out of the Fourth Place, Chapter 6, Hiring Celebrity Pastor. Our culture is fascinated with celebrities. We take selfies when we come into their proximity. We talk about their outfits and wardrobe failings across cubicle walls. We read about their weddings, divorces, babies, and scandals at the checkout aisle. We buy their tickets, scream at the top of our lungs, and wait in line to acquire the t-shirt that proves we were there. We even watch shows where they give awards to themselves. Why do we do it? Some would argue that we follow big people because we feel small. We participate in another's persona because of the conscious or even subconscious lack in our own lives. In Richard Schnickel's fascinating book, Intimate Strangers, he tracks the rise of celebrity culture in America over the past 100 years. He describes one opinion of celebrity as the power to personify the yearning fantasies of the masses, its ability briefly to fulfill, in largely mega-fictional terms, their frustrated dreams. Now, I don't know if a little admiration is such a big deal or if every time we're impressed with someone it reveals a deep psychological need, but I do know that we have a tendency to feel small when we make someone else big. We compare our bodies to our favorite actors and we start to feel ugly. We look at Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs and realize the technology skills or business acumen that we will never possess. We compare our homes to Martha Stewart's or Joanna Gaines and end up depressed or feeling a strange desire to move to Waco, Texas. Something about being around greatness makes us feel small, yet we keep coming back for more. What does this have to do with church? More than you might guess. In the last chapter about place, we discovered that many of our church buildings were not designed to integrate with our culture. They were designed to separate people from it and bring them into our fourth places. In this chapter, we move on to the medium of people. The building was only the beginning of Constantine's impact. In order to run the fourth place, Constantine needed a certain type of leader to attract people toward his center. As we will see, Constantine's priests lay the foundation for our modern concept of the role of pastor. This faulty job description has led to our current crisis of discipleship. A holy persona. Why would Constantine want a celebrity at the helm? Because celebrities are uniquely able to draw attention to themselves. Not only that, while celebrities are making themselves larger than life, they also create a sense of deficiency or lack in everyone else. Constantine tapped into the same principle. He was able to control millions of people and keep them continually attached to his centers of worship by creating in them a sense of lack in an area every Christian desires, holiness. In the Old Testament, the priest was an intermediary or go-between. The people lacked holiness and needed the priest to fill the gap. So every year they made the trek back to the temple, back to the priest to to sacrifice for their sins. Christ followers, of course, know that Jesus already dealt with our sin problem once and for all. Jesus is our true priest. Jesus, in fact, is the only true celebrity, the only one whose holiness actually does make up for our lack of holiness. Jesus is the only mediator, the only go-between we will ever need. Constantine was not overly interested in Jesus. Remember, Constantine self-identified with Moses, not Jesus. Who needs a suffering carpenter when you have the mysterious guy who went up to the mountain and came down glowing? After all, a bleeding servant can hardly inspire and unite an empire. Let's be honest, you can't crucify conquered peoples on Roman crosses and then point to your king on that same cross. Constantine kept coming back to the 
mass again and again by making his leaders appear so holy that they were out of reach to the common people. He was not interested in humble servant leaders. He wanted his religious representatives to look grand and mysterious. He had them march down the center aisle in flowing robes to create a spectacle. Where Jesus said, let the little children come to me, Constantine wanted the kids in the aisle to whisper, look, mom, I almost touched his robe. Constantine had no desire to grow mature disciples. Community, prayer, and sacrificial service toward neighbors held nothing for him. He wanted a simple, dependent people who would keep showing up. Like Mark suggested, he wanted religion as an opiate for the masses. Why is this so important? Because our modern pastoral job description is built on the foundation laid by Constantine's priests. The role was designed not around shepherding souls, but around creating a holy celebrity persona designed for celebrity. Before we go too far, allow me to clarify. I am not saying that every pastor has a hidden agenda to sign autographs or become the next Andy Stanley or Billy Graham. In fact, I would venture to guess that most celebrity pastors never intended to become famous. They are many wonderful and humble people leading churches. God has used our pastoral leaders in amazing ways throughout church history and will continue to do so. Remember, the wineskin is not nearly as important as the wine. However, we have a major systems level issue that we need to talk about. Our current leadership structures are making it too easy for our leaders to burn out or implode. Why is this happening? Because there are natural power dynamics at work. Remember, the survival of the fourth place depends on drawing and keeping people. We need to get them from their world to our world so we must impress them. Note for the audio listener here in this quadrant chart, he has uh, the Our Thing, Our Place with the church in the upper left and the Their Place, Their Thing with buildings and coffee shops and houses. But he has big arrows uh, pulling towards the upper left. So from Their Place, Their Thing to Our Place, Our Thing. The Bible describes Jesus' life as characterized by downward mobility and kingdom values which are upside down compared to the world's systems of power. Jesus was not physically impressive, nor were most of the people he hung around. While we may preach about this reality, putting it into practice is another venture altogether. After all, we have a fourth place image to maintain. In order to draw a crowd, we need our leaders to be the strong face of the organization. The church human resource guide will tell you the pastor who can draw the bigger crowd should get a bigger paycheck. We flip Jesus' value system back right side up. Not just because we want to, but because we have to if we want to keep attracting the people into our building. If you are a pastor, you understand this pressure. You feel it when you preach. You feel it from your board or your elders. They want you to be a big deal. If you are an aging pastor, you also feel this stress. Growing churches are hiring young, attractive talent, not well-aged wisdom. Our church media are still designed for Moses, not Jesus. Everything from the parking lot to the aisles to the service order all point toward the climax of the service when the holy persona comes down from the mountain or onto the stage and delivers the word of the Lord to the crowd of onlookers. So that the people in the back can see, we project our preachers onto giant screens. While we may think we have done a great credit to the gospel by removing Constantine's curtain separating clergy from laity, is it possible that we have simply traded one screen for another? Or is it possible our video screens are performing the same function? Old or new, both screens attest to the reality that the fourth place requires us to project a holy persona at our center. 
Describing the British Commons Chamber Building, Winston Churchill said, We shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us. The building, with its two inward-facing sides, ended up shaping the British two-party system. In the same way, our buildings have are driving the type of leader who will be successful in our churches. I was on staff during a megachurch senior pastor transition where the search team kept saying, we are looking for David, not Saul. They sincerely meant it. However, when you have a giant auditorium, your building has already shaped the person required. Preaching ability was our first filter, and everyone who missed the cut was removed from the process. David missed Samuel's first cut, too. While Samuel was fawning over Jesse's more impressive son, Eliab, Eliab, David was off in the hills, literally pastoring sheep. We have shaped the fourth place, and now the fourth place is shaping our leaders. And unfortunately, the type of leaders we are shaping are the exact opposite of what we need in order to make disciples. Instead of being led by experienced people capable of guiding us through the challenges of real life and culture, we are being led by a class of religious professionals removed from culture, designed to separate. I remember as a kid, every once in a while, I would bump into a pastor in a public place like a grocery store. My emotional response would tell me, pastors are supposed to be in church buildings, not grocery stores. Teachers are supposed to be in schools. Doctors are in hospitals and pastors in church buildings. Where does this impression come from? Certainly not from Jesus. Jesus spent his life in and amongst his culture. He walked their roads, taught in their homes, ate at their tables, and prayed in their gardens. Central to the very identity of Christ himself was the notion that distinctions between the religious elite and the common people were about to be erased. Jesus' disciples, his leaders in training, were a community of nobodies. That was the point. In the early church, every voice mattered and every gift was significant. The church was characterized as a community of mutual participation. There were different roles, but no celebrities. Different gifts, but no platform to ascend. That is what integration looks like. When church became a Roman event, it became so complex that running it required a separate clergy class schooled in the protocol of Rome. The line was redrawn between clergy and laity. Today, the line remains because the complexity remains. Fourth places are demanding. We require facility upkeep. We have utility bills to pay. We have grounds to maintain. We need sound systems, musicians, ushers, and greeters. And don't get me going on children's ministry needs. We always need more nursery workers. And while you would think that all of this fourth place effort should lead to masses of people living like Christ in the world, the opposite is often the case. We are facing a crisis of discipleship in the West. Discipleship in crisis. Discipleship is all about modeling. It is the same as parenting. Children follow what parents do more than what parents say. Modeling overpowers instruction every time. The fundamental flaw of basing church leadership in the fourth place is that it is modeling the wrong thing. We are modeling how to run Christian events rather than how to live like Jesus. The following chart gives us some examples. We are modeling public speaking and musicianship for a crowd that needs a whole different set of life skills. The four-quadrant chart here shows in the Our Place, Our Thing a church building, but also a pastor speaking, and it shows that we need public speakers, musicians, event planners, whereas in contrast, in the Their Thing, Their Place, 
uh, with buildings and homes and workplaces, the skills needed are parents, spouses, neighbors, employers, and employees. So to show that we need a different set of life skills. Our pastors are largely modeling how to remove oneself from culture, not how to live within it. Most pastors are supposed to maintain office hours in the fourth place and often feel guilty if they leave the building during quote-unquote work. Their day of rest happens while the world is working, and their work happens while the world is resting. They have separate tax laws. Many of them wear separate clothing, robes, or collars. When the crowd came to arrest Jesus, they weren't sure which one he was. When the crowd comes to our churches, it's pretty obvious who the leader is. He is the guy behind the microphone on the stage with all the lights focused on him. This disconnect between the fourth place and real life is the reason so many kids grow up in our youth groups thinking that to be a strong Christian leader, they have to either be a great speaker or a talented musician. The medium is the message, and from youth through adulthood, our media are saying, if you're serious about your faith, you will leave the world and get trained for the church stage. While I was working in the corporate world, I had some amazing experiences where God showed up in my workplace. When a non-believer in the cubicle next to me discovered that she had a tumor in her neck and was weeping uncontrollably, a bunch of us Christians invited her to pray with us in one of our conference rooms. She came back a week later and reported that the tumor was gone and she wanted to talk about Jesus. I also got to sit on a philanthropy committee that decided where to give hundreds of thousands of dollars a year towards local community needs. I got to help lead two co-worker friends to Christ as we ate lunch together every day of the week. In the midst of all that, the work itself was also quite interesting. I got to help build custom IT solutions that made our trading floor more productive. That whole time, I longed for a mentor. I wanted someone to care about the impact I could make as a kingdom-minded businessman. Unfortunately, my pastors weren't really equipped for this. Our church simply wasn't structured to be able to take that type of interest in people. Most churches are in a similar situation. Church leaders treat the work in the fourth place as if it's the real work of the ministry. Many pastors are so busy maintaining the fourth place that they have no time to enter the world of their people. Yet sadly, this is exactly what people are longing for. I hear the same cry from people, especially millennials, all the time. Know me as an individual? Stop preaching at me as if my life is the same as everyone else's in this room. Help me explore my questions. Help me connect my faith to the reality of school shootings, Muslim extremism, LGBTQ, and the environment, and politics. Do you hear what people are saying? Stop expecting me to volunteer in your fourth place world if you refuse to take any interest in my world. Ironically, our people are longing for is exactly what Jesus modeled, a biblical pastor. One day, there was a young man named Simon in his boat fixing his nets after catching nothing at all. He was exhausted and probably a little angry and bitter for how life was turning out. A rabbi was teaching nearby, but Simon stayed in his boat. Maybe he thought the rabbi wanted nothing to do with him because he had a big mouth and a pattern for getting himself into trouble. Regardless, the rabbi came over and asked to borrow Simon's boat. He even let Simon stay with him as he started to teach the people on shore. Crazy enough, once he was done teaching, the rabbi wanted to spend more time one-on-one with Simon. He had him push off into deeper water, and they had a conversation that would change Simon's destiny forever. You know the rest of the story. Simon becomes Peter. 
It started because Jesus entered Simon's world. Jesus wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty with some fishermen. He didn't call Peter off to some building where he would train him how to become a famous orator. No, for three years he trained Simon how to see God's kingdom come to life right within his world. After the resurrection, Peter went back to fishing, and once again Jesus came to Peter's shore. After some breakfast, Jesus looked into Peter's eyes and said, Feed my sheep. The word pastor literally means shepherd in the original Greek. When Jesus told Peter to feed his sheep, he was calling him to pastor his church, to shepherd his flock. Jesus trained Peter how to be a pastor, and it had nothing to do with a holy person doing holy things in a holy place. We have to assume that when Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep, that Jesus implied, do what I've been doing with you. Peter would not have heard Jesus say, feed my sheep, and assume that he really meant, hole up in a building and preach once a week, use the building as your office, do some weddings and funerals. For Jesus, pastoring his flock was about shepherding souls right within their world. It was about growing seeds into mature plants. It was about seeing the kingdom vision realized in a human life. In John 4, Jesus entered the world of the Samaritans. He met a woman in a third place at a well. He built a relationship. He planted a seed. This relationship opened the door to the rest of the town of Sychar. Jesus was invited to their first places, their homes and tables. His disciples witnessed it all. Jesus took them with him wherever, everywhere he went and modeled how to live. In the midst of this racism-shattering experience, he looked at them and talked about the harvest being plentiful, but the workers being few. Then he sent them out two by two to do what? To do the things he had been modeling. While he was planting a new seed in the woman at the well, he was maturing his disciples into trees that would bear more fruit. Now this will sound absurd, but imagine for a minute that Jesus stopped his whole discipleship, enter their world thing, and instead he did what we do. Instead of integrating with the people, Jesus built a Jewish synagogue in Samaritan Sychar. He built a reader board out front saying, wells aren't the only place to find living water. Then he sat in his synagogue office all day in the event that some Sicarian actually showed up for a handout or some counseling. He planned sermons, paid the bills, and responded to some nasty letters. Then he coordinated his Jewish leaders for the weekend service and some outreach events. If this sounds ridiculous painting Jesus with our own pastor brush, then why is it so normal for us? Sadly, our working definition of the word pastor is formed out of Constantine's church, not the life of Jesus. Many aspects of our pastoral job description are simply not biblical. The great tragedy is that while many of our leaders become holy celebrity personas, the rest of us are getting smaller. While modern technology gives us immediate access to some of the biggest Christian superstars in history, we also have a largely biblical illiterate church. We are downloading millions of sermon podcasts while many people in the churches are afraid to have a spiritual conversation with their neighbors. They are convinced they could never speak to a non-believer with the same knowledge or authority of their pastor. We have outsourced ministry to the professionals, and it is stunting our growth. Parenting 101. Parenting 101 states that if you want your kids to stay emotional babies their entire life, keep spoon-feeding them as long as you can. Don't give them any real responsibility. Don't let them bump their head on the table. Protect them. Coddle them. Be their continual source of food and nourishment. Do this with your kids, and you are sure to destroy them. 
Unfortunately, we have a church culture of consumers crying out, feed me, feed me, and expecting to be bottle-fed well into their old age. All blame goes towards the platform. In 1 Corinthians, Paul accused the church of being spiritual infants because they are still fighting about their favorite teachers. Ironically, Paul's accusation of infancy had nothing to do with the quality of teaching nor the competency of the teachers, but instead the needy and critical posture of the listeners. Imagine, the teachers they were comparing were Paul, Apollos, and Peter. People who are ready for spiritual meat show that they have grown up by being less dependent on their parents for food. They have learned to self-feed. They are beginning to feed others. People who are arguing about the deepest teachings simply prove by their posture of pastoral dependency that they are not yet self-sustaining adults. Perhaps we are thinking wrongly about our food. After talking with a woman at the well, Jesus' disciples tried to get him to go into town and get something to eat. His response in John 4.34, My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus was fed as he actively went about his father's business. Maybe it is time to challenge the long-held assumption that if we just preach the right sermons, our people are sure to grow. Sermons are not enough. I remember one meeting with a church consultant where he asked our pastor, what is your plan to grow your people this year? The pastor quickly got out his preaching calendar and started talking about his various sermons. The consultant asked, where's the other half? The pastor asked, what do you mean the other half? The consultant replied, I mean the systems you need in place so that people can actually do the stuff you're telling them to do. Sermons alone are simply not enough for people to grow up in Christ. Let's look at Jesus' pattern for growing people. He invited ordinary people to join his spiritual family on mission together. He modeled and taught them how to do the mission. He empowered them to do it while he preached and debriefed. Then he released them to produce more disciples. Jesus' spiritual growth pattern matches normal human development. As children grow, we give them some responsibility, small at first. We empower them to test out their own wings in the world. We teach them how to drive with a permit, and then they are ready on their own. We send them to college or to the workplace. They usually return home for a while. We debrief. We discuss. We send them out again. Eventually, they figure out how to provide for themselves, maybe even have some children of their own, then repeat the process. Dr. Henry Cloud and John Townsend, Dr. John Townsend in their book, How People Grow, lists multiple factors for spiritual growth. For them, the big picture of growth is returning to our original created intent in the garden. This not only involves a restored relationship to God, but also life-giving human relationships, meaningful work in the world, and more. This process of restoration involves acceptance, forgiveness, suffering, discipline, obedience, and authentic community. There is so much more to growth than lecture-based learning environments. Businesses and the education system are realizing this, yet churches seem to be the last to catch on. My close friend Tim works for Starbucks and oversees a team responsible for operational efficiency in thousands of stores. He told me that in order to create dedicated and successful partners or employees, Starbucks utilizes a training model of 70% on-the-job training. 20% mentoring relationships, and 10% instructional content. If we apply this Starbucks 70-20-10 plan to your church, how much of your church discipleship strategy is on-the-job training, mentoring, and content delivery? If your church is like most modern churches, I bet the highest percentage is spent on content delivery. 
I'm not saying that Starbucks should dictate our discipleship process, but when we think of the life of Jesus, on-the-job training makes a lot of sense. We can picture it. We know how Jesus trained his disciples as they traveled along the way. We may even be able to picture it when we think about InterVarsity and other parachurch ministries that spend their time in this region. InterVarsity trains leaders by teaming them up in college dorms with more experienced leaders. The students learn how to disciple by watching others do it and participating in it. Inviting, modeling, empowering, releasing. A Different Kind of Church by Dudley Callison. I took a group of financial partners to visit one of our churches in Europe. This church is embedded deeply within a city that is home to many North of African immigrants. Before the trip, these friends posed all the right questions. Will we be there for the church service and hear the sermon? Can we attend a Bible study? When will we get to join them in local evangelism efforts? My only response was, was, you'll just have to wait to see. When we arrived, the leaders introduced us to their way of being the church. Their fellowship centered on caring for immigrant children and families. The after-school program has become known throughout the city as an effective means of integration, language, and cultural learning, and academic success. Without apology, the leaders described their approach as based on the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. As we participated one afternoon, a teenage girl shared that she was having disturbing dreams full of fear. We watched as one of the leaders entered into that conversation with her and helped her find peace and comfort in Jesus. Evangelism unfolded before our eyes. The next day, we took 20 kids to the local school treetop ropes course. The leader prayed for the group, not just for safety, but for discovery of courage and Jesus as the source of it. The experienced kids became the disciples, showing the new kids how to face their fears and overcome them by faith. As the trip wrapped up, my friends had not yet attended a traditional church service or heard a sermon from a pulpit, but their overwhelming response was, Thank you. Thank you for taking us to church. We never knew it could be like this. InterVarsity's vision statement is to see students and faculty transformed, campuses renewed, and world changers developed. They realize this vision is by coming alongside students in their world, not asking them to leave their world and sit in a fourth place. Yet most of our local churches largely have growth backwards. We are trying to grow people using Constantine's forms, yet those forms were designed to keep people reliant on a holy celebrity persona. Adults who stay dependent on their parents for life have issues often requiring counseling, yet that is what we have in our churches, a fee-for-service financial model where people think they are tithing in order to pay for good spiritual food from the pastor. Is it any wonder congregants whine and complain when their food isn't made to order? Now pastors are the ones in counseling wondering why they are working so hard and seeing so little growth. A place for preaching. If you're concerned that I want us all to do away with preaching, that is not what I'm saying. Jesus often preached to large crowds, as did the apostles. Clearly, preaching is biblical and a key component in any church. The problem isn't preaching. It is the absolute dominance of preaching and the overall discipleship strategy of the local church. Willow Creek, one of the largest evangelical churches in the country, conducted a study called Revealed, where they surveyed over 250,000 people in more than 1,000 churches across many denominations. They broke down the spiritual journey into four segments, exploring Christ, growing in Christ, close to Christ, and Christ-centered. They evaluated the most effective way of helping people move from one segment to the next. Preaching and worship services were found to be helpful for the first movement, 
from exploring Christ to growing in Christ. According to MOVE, the book describing the survey results, weekend services most benefit those in the earliest stages. Biblically, this makes sense. Paul asks, how will they believe unless they hear? Clearly, there is a part of the growth continuum that does require some spoon-feeding. There is a point at which people actually are spiritual infants. As people move down the continuum, Willow Creek found that it was personal spiritual practices, especially personal Bible reading, that was by far the most important factor in growth. In other words, people moved from depending on the pastor for food to self-feeding as they became spiritual adults. As the church in the West, we are buying into a dangerous misconception as to our source of food. We have a church culture so accustomed to a steady overfeeding diet of sermons that churchgoers are no longer hungry. Knowledgeable Christians are stalling out in their growth and becoming critiques while they should be moving into self-feeding and spiritual reproduction. Preaching has an important place, but it is not our primary means of growth. The pastor's role is not merely to feed the already satiated, but to cultivate spiritual hunger and a culture of self-feeding. Growth requires a community of mutual participation, not a room designed for a celebrity and their adoring fans. Many evangelical Christians are now looking to the spiritual formation movement for real growth. Sunday morning is simply not feeding their souls anymore. Jesus' pastors were shepherds of spiritual families. Our pastors end up shepherds of spiritual events. There is a big difference. The spiritual formation movement is not rooted in Constantine's events, but in the monastic life of spiritual family. The resources come not from the medium of the stage, but from lives of deep prayer, contemplation, shared community, and suffering. The medium is the message. Right now, our preacher-centric structures are designed to make holy celebrity personas and small dependent Christians. The stage-based pastoral job description is not working. Where are we going? As with the last chapter on place, this chapter on people is pushing on some long-held views of who pastors are and what they should do. For some, you agree with that we have a major issue with our pastoral job description, but you are not sure what the alternative might be. Don't worry. As much as we have described the negative fruit of the separation of clergy and laity, we will talk about the wonderful possibilities of integration in chapter 10. We will tell the stories of many churches using a fundamentally different leadership model and what that can look like. Plus, we have only really talked about pastors in this chapter. Why? Because that is the only gift we really affirm and pay for in the West. We will see in chapter 10 that redefining the role of the pastor allows for the possibility to utilize the other gifts of apostle, prophets, evangelists, and teachers. Not only that, it will also allow pastors to finally be pastors, shepherds of people, rather than fourth-place event planners. Where are you? In the last chapter, you identified your building on the chart. That was just the first step of evaluating your church medium. Now we need to identify where you are in terms of the medium of people. Why? Because it is possible to practice integration in one medium, yet practice separation in another medium. For example, if you meet in a concert venue or school, yet your whole church culture still revolves around a weekend service with a big personality, then you have integrated place, but not people. Integrating people means that you have a church culture of mutual participation where every voice and gift matters. These gifts are not primarily used to run forth places, Instead, your church is designed to walk with and empower people as they learn to enjoy God's grace and to use their gifts in their world. So, 
where are you? Our thing, our place. If your church revolves around the fourth place event and there are usually one or two main voices on stage, you would likely identify yourself in our thing, our place. You'd also be here if staff time, stress, and budget primarily revolve around getting people to run your fourth place events and programs. Note for the audio listener, this four quadrant chart only shows the top left quadrant, our place, our thing, with the church building all by itself. Our thing, their place. If you have empowered a second tier of unpaid leaders who are leading small groups or missional communities within culturally relevant spaces, you have moved into the our thing, their place quadrant. If small groups are little more than your organization's way to grow your fourth place, you are still in the top part of this gray area. However, if your church has given legitimate pastoral responsibility to these leaders and you view these gatherings as equally part of your definition of church, then you have moved toward a more integrated approach to people. Note to the audio listener, this four-quadrant chart shows the church in the upper left, our place, our thing, and the bottom half has the houses and schools and buildings and workplaces, but only the left side of the chart, the our thing, is shaded. So the church is doing things in the our place, our thing, but also doing things in the our thing, their place quadrant. Their thing, our place. Perhaps you own a building and are able to use it to bring the world to you. Maybe one of your staff members, instead of sitting in her office, runs a public coffee shop or co-working business right from your facility. If your job involves tenant relationships, small business, or running a concert venue, you might be somewhere in this region. Note for the audio listener, in this four-quadrant chart, only the top half is shaded, but there's only buildings in the top right quadrant, our place, their thing, signifying that the church is meeting in coffee shops and schools and other buildings that are not a church building. Their thing, their place. To the degree that your church's ministry involves living and working alongside normal humans, you have moved into their thing, their place quadrant. Note to the audio listener, in this chart, only the lower half is... Uh, shaded in and has the buildings, our thing, their place, and their thing, their place. So showing that the church is doing their thing in homes and schools and office buildings, but is also joining uh, the people in their thing, their place, in offices, homes, and coffee shops. Getting out of the building during the day can move you a little further down the chart, but not very far. You may meet with a volunteer in a coffee shop from time to time, but if your work is still focused on the events of the fourth place, that is still your quadrant. To be fully integrated means your center is no longer in the building. Think of university of an university director. They co- office at the coffee shop. They hang out on campus. They go to the football game. Where is their center? Their center is as mobile as the people they are trying to love and disciple. If your leadership job descriptions are designed around walking with people in the context of their normal life, helping them to see Christ's kingdom's vision realized in their world, put your church somewhere in this region. Where are you? Go ahead and make an X on the graphic above to indicate your starting point in terms of the medium of people. One more medium. We are now two-thirds of the way toward understanding Constantine's impact on the church. We have seen that not only did Constantine move the church into the fourth place, but that this move had a major impact on the way we view and approach Christian leadership. 
We have one more medium to address our practices. Paul urged believers, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. As a church, we are very sacrificial. We give all kinds of money, talent, and energy towards our worship. The only problem is, is that we have been offering those sacrifices at the wrong altar.